Hey folks, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. The Restoration Project is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church located in Salisbury, Maryland. We are taking a break from our latest sermon series. Enjoy this standalone episode. Thanks for listening. My daughter, Kenna, is with me. I have five kids, and uh, Kenna normally falls asleep. So if you can just keep it above that level, I'll be happy. So appreciate it very much. We had a long weekend. My son uh, is um, 10. He is uh, down at, he just came from Virginia Beach. He has a soccer tournament all weekend. So we've, uh, Kenna and I have been in the sun, windburn, sunburn. We changed it to Hardee's on the way up. I stepped in something in the bathroom. I'm sure she did. And so uh, so what a, this is a good ending to a long weekend. And we, I, we're literally privileged to be here. Uh, Josh and I have known each other since high school. We both graduated in 99. He graduated, graduated from Epworth when it still existed. And I graduated from Seifer Christian Academy when it still existed. And, um, and we were two, uh, two good, good uh, rival schools. We had friends, uh, Josh and I were friends, and we had a, um, a lot of other friends who were closer to each other than even Josh and I were. And, and uh, so some great uh, small uh, pond matchups, big fish in small ponds is kind of the best way to describe who we were uh, back then. So if you are anybody from that era, in Delaware, Maryland, uh, Eastern Shore, Maryland, uh, that I played sports against in 96 to 99. I, I need to apologize. I was a punk. Um, most of us were, if, if you were in the Christian school movement back then. And uh, so I'm glad I have any friends left from that time, and especially Josh. And we've been, certainly been following um, the Restoration Project's journey. Um, I think last time Josh and I were together, Josh was actually leading worship at High Tide Church, and I was actually just starting our church plant over in Annapolis, and uh, Josh and I got to kind of just reconnect there and talk a little bit there, and um, and so we've just been kind of talking about church planting and following each other's uh, stories over the last few years, and uh, just awesome to see just the, the um, local communities God brings uh, together, and, and he needs so many of them to reach so many di- different types of people, uh, Saturday night services, Sunday mornings, Sunday nights. Uh, it, it just always blows my mind when somebody, we used to do a Saturday night service, and people would question me about that, and I just think, like, of all the things you could waste your time questioning, the time of meeting to worship Jesus in the venue, it just blows my mind. People, Christians, uh, ask about that and, and wonder if it's okay to do that. And I, you know, just, I think God's okay anytime people get together to worship him. And so I'm glad to be here on a Sunday night in this amazing, beautiful uh, facility with this uh, beautiful church family, the Restoration Project. And I did want to uh, share, I'm, this isn't kind of going to be a, a typical message. It's just going to share our journey specifically with adoption, just because I, I really actually don't get to share that uh, journey very much. But it um, started um, back when I met my wife back in college. Uh, I was I was that cliche Christian um, that was going to a, it was a very conservative Christian college and um, and going to be a pastor. And my wife was a nurse. And uh, the one thing I didn't want to be growing up was a pastor married to a nurse because that's what my parents are and and that's what I am today. So. Um, and so I, uh, I, but you know, just like every college student, when you can't make out, you know, because you're Christians on a Christian college, uh, you talk, you know, and we were talked about every endless thing. Where do you want to be in 10 years or whatever? And so we did the cliche, like, oh, it'd be great to adopt and we'll do it, whatever. I mean, truly never thinking we would ever do it. I mean, I just, it was just one of those things you just, like you talk about all this dumb stuff, you know, and, and, um, and so we, we, you know, went to Northern Virginia out of college. I pastored there as a single adult pastor, moved to Annapolis, started the church. And my wife really was the, the, um, catalyst for us 
getting into foster care. My wife approached me a number of times and said, um, Kenna was our youngest bio kid. And she said, I just, I feel like God is calling us to, to uh, be part of that community, the, the foster uh, community. And, um, and so that for our personal journey was where we started to get involved. Now, a few years before that, the way Love Gives got started was um, on my, one of my birthdays, I can't remember which one, about seven years ago. Uh, it was my, actually my 30th birthday, that's what it was. Um, I, was I was actually reading the story of Genesis uh, 21 with Hagar uh, just a few days before my 30th birthday. And, and uh, the story of Hagar, if you don't know it, Hagar was a slave to Sarah, Sarah being the wife of a guy named Abraham, Abraham being the father of the Jewish nation of Israel. And, and so this woman was not born into any type of privilege at all. In fact, there's not too many worse scenarios you probably can be born into and live, grow up in and live in and to be a slave uh, girl to, to, uh, to somebody that's actually counter uh, community to who you are, are going to be. And, and, um, and the story of Hagar was, it blows my mind because we make such a big deal about Israeli and peace and all that stuff. And man, if you just read the story of Genesis, how it played out, you see God loves, man, he loves everybody. And in Genesis chapter 16, uh, Sarah you know, and Abraham come up with their own plan and to, to get pregnant because they believe that she's gonna, God promised them, them a child and he's going to be the father of many nations. And so they take matters in their own, own hands. Abraham's 86 years old and uh, Sarah's 10 years younger. And so, so um, nothing's happening. So, so they have their own plan. They, and, and Sarah says, I want you to go, go uh, sleep with my slave girl, Hagar. And, and, um, and God, God actually uh, blesses through that humanistic attempt to do God's will, manufacture a miracle. And, and Hagar gets pregnant, which only builds contempt in Sarah's heart. Sarah attacks Hagar, and the Bible basically says that she, she abuses her, we don't know physically or I'm sure verbally. Uh, but Hagar flees, runs for her life, the Bible says. And in Acts, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 16, Hagar is on the run and she sits down and God speaks to her and says, I want you to go back. You're pregnant. And you actually need to be in that setting for what I'm going to do. And, and God allows her to, to, to um, be blessed in that abusive slave relationship. Uh, her son Ishmael grows up. Well, fast forward 14 years later when Sarah finally has, has her promised one, Isaac. And this time, instead of Hagar running for her life, Sarah and, and Abraham having marriage problems, as polygamy often leads to. Take note of that. And, uh, and he, see, they laughed. All right, tell Josh. I don't know if any other speakers ever got to laugh. I got to chuckle. And, um, and, and, uh, and Sarah actually kicks them out. Abraham says, what am I going to do? And, she's, and, and Abraham goes to God and God says, talk with your wife and whatever she says to do, you do it. And Sarah says, I want her out of here. Gives her a bottle of water. Um, not like ethos water, but like, you know, uh, camel skin and, or, and, um, and a little food and sends her out into the desert. And I'm sure this is a little liberal thinking on my part, but I'm sure Abraham really thought his problem is going to go away when she goes into the desert and dies. And his son, 14 year old son, uh, Ishmael is going to die as well. And they do, they're on their deathbed. They're out of water and Hagar sets Ishmael down away from her, Bible says a, a, a bow and arrow's distance away because she can't bear to see her son die. And, and Ishmael, and God speaks to Hagar, and he says, Hagar, I want you to open up your eyes and I want you to look over there. There's a well over there. 
And my plan 14 years ago is still in effect today. Ishmael is gonna be a father of a great people. I'm gonna bless them. I'm with you today. You're not, you don't need to go back to Abraham and Sarah. And here's the verse that God spoke to me about seven years ago. It says this. Uh, this is Genesis chapter 21, verse 19. It says, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and, f- uh, went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. God spoke to me about that because if you fast forward 4,000 years to where we're at today, you know how it all's played out with Israel and Palestine being at odds. And you think to yourself, if God doesn't love this world, he wasn't very good at stopping things back then because he very well have could have twice let Sarah or Hagar die in a wilderness, die in, in Ishmael as well. And, and there would be no Palestine today or there wouldn't be what it is the, the, at odds that we have, have today. But you see from that story, two things. God loves the souls of all of mankind, not just Jewish people, and he certainly does, not just Middle East, he loves them all. And, if, and, and, and God's intent, I believe, with, with Ishmael's life is to prove that, that God loves everybody. And, but he used a cup of cold water to refresh um, Ishmael and Sarah. And so going to my 30th birthday, literally it was on a Saturday night, I thought, you know what? You know, people, even at, at 30s, they still say, well, you don't want something for a birthday or whatever. And, and I told my wife, he said, you know, I'd like to actually do something with my birthday. If somebody's gonna do anything for me, I'd like to like, like do something that actually made a difference. And so the next day in church, I said, you know, I'd love for us to just do an adoption fundraiser and, and uh, anything that you might want to give, if, if whatever, like little joke birthday present, uh, gift card to, to Dunkin' Donuts, $5, put it, let's do a fundraiser. A friend of mine started an online fundraiser, fundraiser that afternoon, Sunday afternoon, and we raised $18,000 by Thursday. And it blew, I literally thought maybe $100, $200. Like, like we might get that just as a joke, uh, be, you know, from, from instead of Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks gift cards or whatever. It blew my mind. In fact, we, we didn't even have a place to send the money. Uh, we, we found uh, somebody locally, we gave uh, $12,000 to, and we sent another $6,000 to Bethany Christian Service, just sent to their office, a $6,000 check, and just said, you know, we did this, and, and we want you to bless it. We found out about five months later that they sent that money on to an adoption in Michigan and helped pay the rest of an adoption family. But we don't know who that, who that child is. And so, so that was in September, September 30th, if anybody's taking notes when my birthday is. And, okay, uh, three laughs, three laughs right there. Okay, and, um, and uh, so we moved it. We, uh, the next year, uh, we, we definitely didn't want it to be like about Donnie's birthday, and we knew that wouldn't last. <laughs> uh, one year and a joke would be fine, but we knew for it to be something bigger than that. So the next year, we basically tied it into National Adoption Month is in November. And we just planned it out more. We picked an, uh, an adopting family that we wanted to support and we went at it. And, and what we did, I sat down with a youth pastor um, in, over in Annapolis, uh, just a good friend of mine, his name Ron Foster. And he was telling me about some fundraising ideas. He was just kind of, we were just talking. Uh, and he said, uh, we do this, this envelope drive, we get a hundred envelopes. And if you put a $1 all the way through 100, if you mark a hundred envelopes, one, two, three, all the way to a hundred, he said, if everybody takes an envelope, 100 people take an envelope, fill it up with that amount, so $1 in, or up to $100, bring it back, you'll raise $5,050. And so I was like, that is, I mean, I, at that time, our church had, you know, had uh, over 100 people in it, and I thought, good Lord, this is, 
this is doable. Like we could put a big debt in the fun, you know, fundraising just like that. So that's literally what we've done. That's what love gives is for the last seven years is we've just November through Christmas Eve uh, at our Christmas Eve service, we announced how much money was raised. Um, now we pick an adopting family each year and we try to raise as much money for them as, as well. This past year we picked two adopting family because we do have two separate center point churches. One supported one family, but this, this past year we raised $17,000 and, and, um, and, and, and in years past we've helped, uh, there's another great local church near us that we, we have plenty of friends back and forth and everything. Um, they had two adopting families. So they had one of their church did the envelope drive uh, and our church did an envelope drive for the two separate families. And, and, um, and we raised $20,000 that year. So in the last seven years, We've uh, come close to raising about $150,000. And I kid you not, from a simple envelope drive, now we do a golf tournament and stuff like that. People did yard, we raised a couple thousand dollars last year from a spring yard sale. Um, so people have just grabbed on to say, you know what, I, I, God's not called me to adopt a kid, but I wanna help a family. Uh, and, and we just do, do for one what we wanna do for everyone. So we know that we're not called to save the world, but we are called to help the ones we can. And, and so we've been just very strategic in praying, God, would you lead us to that one uh, family in, the, in our story each year? And when you add that up each, each year, uh, it, it's, you look back and say, man, we, you know, God, God's been amazing with that. Now the privilege with this, and I kid you, you know, I'm not a planner by any means. I never thought the joy of being able to look back after seven years and see kids that were adopted when they were 12, now they're 19-year-olds in college, and what that would do for my soul it, but it just blows my mind or to get an get a email from one of the parents and be like, hey, just want to let you know they're involved in this and, and, and they, they, you know, they still thank you for just a small little, and, and all we say to people is we're just trying to be a cup of cold water on the long journey of the marathon of life. That's all we're trying to be. We're not trying to be everything to you. We can't. We can't pay $40,000 adoptions for, for China and all that stuff, but I can be a cup of cold water that just helps this adopting family uh, continue on this journey that God's called you to. So when my wife was talking about adoption, um, we didn't feel led to adopt. We felt led to do foster care. Now this is this is the part of the the story where people look at me like, okay, and I realize they don't know what the difference between adoption and foster care. Some of you might, but um, a foster care is when a kid is taken in by the state, and the state is the um, the custodian of the kid. You are just. Um, literally employed by the state to be take to take care of whatever kids they assign you to, but the kid, but the goal for for foster care is for the kid to go back to their biological family. I grew up at, when my parents actually started doing. I grew up in, over in Denton, Maryland, the the uh, outhouse of the Eastern Shore, as I like to call it. If you're on their way to the beach from the Western Shore, that's where you stop to go to McDonald's and use the bathroom. And so. Um, my, my parents got involved with foster care when I was 13. It was a miserable experience. The first two years had a horrible, uh, horrible relationship with my first foster brother who was also 13. Uh, and, and, um, and, uh, but I had seven different foster brothers and sisters all growing. In fact, one who is mentally disabled, he actually lives right here in um, Salisbury. His name's Mark. Uh, he lives on his own. He was uh, born completely um, without any disabilities, but when he, was, uh, when he was seven, his uncle got drunk and beat him so bad, gave, left him permanent brain damage. So Mark is under the care, he lives in his own apartment, but under the care of, um, I can't think of the name of the, the, the organization that helps people live independent lives or whatever, but he's got 
uh, a girlfriend or fiance, maybe wife, depending on which day you ask him. And uh, he's got a daughter and he has a full-time job that this organization, he changes uh, oil at Grease Monkey or something like that. And, um, and so he's doing better than, don't feel bad for Mark. He's doing better than most of you, all right? And he doesn't have any debt, you know? So... Mark, Mark's no, no, Mark doesn't have any biological family left. So Mark does view, I view Mark as my brother. He views me that way. And he views my parents as his parents or, or whatnot. So, but he was never officially adopted. In fact, when I went to college, Mark was two years younger than me. But he actually had to go live uh, in a group home then because he was so big that while my dad was literally preaching, my dad's a pastor, Mark had just had no self-control. So he would go touch you know, people and girls and all that stuff or whatever. Nothing uh, with bad intent, but it was just, so we, I saw growing up all the, the tough, I mean, it was, it was a tough journey uh, being involved in foster care. So my wife, that's what she wants us to get into. <laughs> and um, so I said, well, here, I got some rules, okay? Um, and so for us, we just felt like keeping the birth order was very important. Now, I don't think everybody should even worry about that, but for us, Kenan was, was um, uh, two at the time we started talking about it. And, um, and so my wife got us into the classes, got us, made us go, you know, get licensed and everything. Uh, she did everything. She, she, you know, you got to have all these inspections of your home. Um, and, and I, I was open to it, but knowing this isn't like a, like a, you know, this isn't a Disney movie. All right. You know, this is free Willy. That's what everybody thinks of like foster care. You know, this isn't free Willy. Like it doesn't, there's no whale jumping at the end of the day. Like there's, there are broken windows. I've, I've, I've been in fist fights with my brother and siblings. I've, uh, uh, you know, seen my mom, you know, have a glass thrown at her head and, and, uh, police, I've, well, assist my, one of my foster sisters, uh, I took, we drove home from church one night. This one, this one, the one ones I liked, uh, she said, uh, uh, she went to her room. A boy had broken up with her, and, and um, I was 16. She was 15, and she said, "I'm going to go kill myself." And I said, "And I said, well, do it after the basketball game," because I thought she was just joking. She went and swallowed a bottle of pills, and I had to call the paramedics and everything. And so I knew this wasn't some pretty little Disney story that we were getting ourselves into. And uh, and uh, so we got we went through the adoption process or the foster care process, and this is three and a half years ago, and they said. We said we don't want uh, we we don't we will only take a, a kid under two, um, and and uh, because we want to keep the birth birth order, and actually we couldn't because we had a townhouse in Annapolis, um, so we actually couldn't take anybody over outside of a crib size because of the all the laws with all that. So they were they were good with that, but they said, look, we don't we don't ever get babies because family has no problem taking babies. They don't want the older kids, the brats or whatever. So um, so that's the literally what happened. We got licensed in March. We didn't get a phone call at all till November 5th. In fact, I forgot we were even licensed as, licensed as foster parents. Never, my wife, we never even talked to it. Never thought, hell, oh, were they gonna call us today? And we were just going about raising three kids. And uh, one day, November 5th, it was a rainy day. I was coming back from, uh, from Severna Park, Maryland, driving Route 2 down to Annapolis, and rainy, cold day, and my wife calls. My wife's an, a pediatric nurse at Anne Arundel Medical Center in Annapolis. So she says, she says, hey, they called me and they said they have um, a one-month-old that has to be just discharged today. Um, they want us to know if they want us to take them. Uh, they want to know if we want to take them. We have to call them back in 20 minutes. I thought she was talking about a baby from the emergency room that she works at. And I, and I said, is that legal? Like, you, I've never, you've never asked for us to take one of your kids before. I literally wasn't even in my mind. And so she starts answering me thinking like like not realize I'm talking about that and so we have this two three minute conversation about I'm thinking we're taking we're kidnapping a baby from the hospital and I said what are you talking about she said 
foster kid. Like, there's a foster kid's got to be discharged by, by uh, 5 p.m. today. It was at noon. She said, we, we got 20 minutes to call them. I said, oh, yeah, we're foster parents. I said, well, that's what we signed up for, you know? And, um, and that's literally, you know, it. And so 8, 8 19 p.m., they brought, uh, um, uh, the, his birth name is Kevin. Found out that that was um, mom's um, friend Killer's uh, uh, real name. So we didn't ever call him Kevin. Uh, we called him Zachary, uh, which is his middle name, which means remembered by God. So we've always, from day one, we always call him Zachary. So Zachary came into our lives at 8, 8, 8.19 p.m. that night, put him in my arms, and he felt like mine ever since. I have friends who, you know, when anybody's thinking about adoption and foster care, they, you know, they ask the real questions. I had a friend about two months ago who said, all right, be honest with me. Do you love your adopted kids as much as you do your, false, your, your bio kids? And I said, no, I do love them different though. It's just a very different thing. I, say, I, t- I tell everybody it's like this. You know how when you're a kid, you love your mom and you love your dad the same but different? Like they just bring something different to your life. It's, it's the same, I guess, but it's very different. It's the same thing with my bio kids and my, fo- my foster son of kids and my adopted, they're adopted now. We, I love them the same, certainly, but it's very different. There's actually, it's not more love, but there's a protection that goes with it that the whole family feels. Like, and you would ask Kenna, do you love Caden, her bio brother, the same as Zachary? Of course she would say yes, but it's different. She, doesn't, she would love to get, see Caden get hit upside the head with a baseball bat by somebody, you know, her bio brother. But if anybody did that to her, her, her adopted brother, she would beat him to death, you know? And so it's a, just a different type of thing. The same, absolutely. And um, so you, it's just a different way of seeing this. But again, this isn't this perfect story. And, and so the whole time, every, every week we have to take this baby to visitation for one hour with mom and then one hour with dad. They're, they are high as a kite and it's the hardest two hours of your life because you can't be there. So you have to drop this kid off who you view as your, yours and, and hand them over to at a visitation person. And you can see mom can barely even stand up. And you wouldn't do that with your own kid. And, that's, and you view this foster kid as your own and you feel like you're the worst human alive. And, um, and so the real big uh, adventure happened. Um, we had Zachary for six months. It looked basically at that point, they give the parents, the birth parents about a, a year to get their life together. But in that year, they have to, they don't have to get their life together. They have to begin the journey. They have to be, do past drug tests. They have to get into parenting classes. Dad wasn't doing any of that. We knew he wasn't going to be an option. Um, mom tried to play the game, but she felt, basically it turned out after a few months, like, yeah, this is, they're not getting them back. And so, but, but they have to wait for a year to change the, the permanency plan to adoption. So six months in, it was, a, it was a weeknight. We were actually doing a kids' event at our church. And, um, and so Jen gets the four kids back to the house right after the event. And I'm, like, locking up the doors at the church. And, 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 um, and I walk into our townhouse, and I hear my wife screaming, like, get up here, you know, or whatever. And basically she had put Zachary on the bed uh, to, to get him ready for his bath. She went to the bathroom to, to get the water right, and he arched his legs and slid off the bed. And so he slid feet, feet first onto the floor. Frankly, I've dropped all my kids. All right, not that big of a deal to me, you know? So she were testing everything. She were really wondering if he hit his head or whatever and all that stuff and seemed as normal, weird as ever, you know? And so six-month-old baby, you know, he seemed fine or whatever. Cried for just a second, really. Gave him a bath, put him right to bed. Next morning, it was really early. My wife had to go to work, be at work by seven. Was, so she comes down. I'm downstairs at like 5.30 in the morning. 
she and on the couch, and she comes down with him, and um, as she's about you know about to leave or whatever, and um, she and I and I hold him up, and I'm just sitting there, and I put him on his lap, and and he stand him up, and he just starts screaming, and so so you could tell any pressure on his uh, right foot was hurting him. So that's when my wife just starts freaking out and she's like crying. She's like, they're gonna take him. They're gonna investigate us or whatever. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, we, like every kid in the world gets dropped or falls off something. Like that can't, this isn't that big of a deal. So I call our social worker right away. I said, look, we, you know, here's what happened or whatever. So, okay, you know, I'm taking him to the pediatrician and I, we knew we'd get referred to whatever. So I'm, I'm at the, ped- my wife has to go to work. She, she's worrying the whole time, calling me every five minutes. I'm at the pediatrician and I realize how serious this was about 10 minutes in meeting with the pediatrician. She starts asking me all these weird questions she's never asked me with my other three kids. Is your wife that uh, lose her temper? Like, <laughs> like, what? You know, and that's where like, oh dear, you know. And so, so then we have to go get him a cast and our social worker comes and our social worker's in tears. And she said, you know, I've been telling you all day this isn't a big deal. She says, this is a big deal. And um, she says, he can't stay with you tonight. We have to open an investigation. You have a place. So this is like a kid you feel like your own. Um, and so I don't know if you have kids and you can imagine somebody taking your own kid out of, out of your house for the night because you're a bad parent. Uh, but it's, it's the worst. I kid you not. I don't, there's no worse feeling in the world. And um, so this is late in the day, but now all this gets done. Our kids get home from school and, um, and this is all happening. A lot of phone calls and everything. And they're, they're sitting on the couch crying. Their little brother is leaving, you know, and we know that we're not getting him back. That's not, we know how it works. We know, um, my wife is normally the one from the hospital calling CPS saying, you need to come get, bring the police. We got a kid. So my wife knows how this works. When they open an investigation, you're not getting a kid back because they think you, you beat the kid, you know? And so um, I go downstairs to the bottom level to call the bio dad of Zachary to explain what's going on. And he's, he's, everything's fine or whatever. And he was, we had a, we had a short, you know, night, he wasn't. Uh, jerk or anything, and and I just sat down there and just crying and just we were saying that second song, a good good father, and uh, and I told God he wasn't, and I I cussed God and I let him know everything, how he had set us up, and um I was so mad and and uh, about five minutes later, I'm just sitting down there crying and. Letting God have it. And, and uh, I hear more crying upstairs. My sister-in-law would come over, her husband come over. They're up there crying or whatever. And, and, uh, and I hear more, like more of an uproar cry, not just a steady, you know, uh, cry. And uh, I'm like, what, what now? We drop another one, you know? And, and uh, so I go up there and the social worker I called and said, they said, she said, um, she said, they're not taking them out of the house tonight. Uh, they're coming by. The, we had investigators come I mean, it was like till they're questioning Kenna, like a, you know, a, a five-year-old. Uh, where were you when mom was given the bat? I mean, and, and my kids were like looking at us. We're like, no, we can't help you. You know, and, and uh, so um, it was just, it, it was very, and, and the next day, more social workers come by and this uh, older African-American woman who had been doing this forever, she, um, she says, Donna, you're a pastor, so I'm gonna talk to you like I wouldn't talk to others. She said, do you think God is in, in this story and I'm in tears, and she said, I'm a very emotional guy. And, um, and uh, I said, yeah. And she said, Donnie, she said, I've, I've, um, the, the investigator I called, uh, that was called, this is what he does. He's a police officer. That's all he does is investigations for child abuse. And she said, um, for the last eight years, he's the one I've been working with, and I, I've never even talked to him on the phone. She says, I sent an email, 
And he responds, and, and there's not one time in eight years we've never not opened an investigation. And she said, the first time I talked to him on the phone was last night, and he called me and said, what do I need to do with this Reynolds family? And she says, you don't need to do anything. And he said, all right. And she said, you're the first person, you're the first family we've never, never opened an investigation with. And um, she says, if you don't believe God's in this, she says, I do. And so she said, maybe God called me to preach to the preacher or whatever. And so we're just in tears and everything. And, 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 and it's just, uh, I say that to say, even so many times, even after that, you get a phone call and they say, hey, we found this relative and they want the kid to always go with a relative over a foster family. And so your heart just breaks every time. You want the best thing for this kid. But when you get on Facebook, I'm a Facebook creeper, and you see this relative they found, and they've got four kids living in a trailer in, in some remote little town in Southern Maryland, your heart just envisions how this kid's gonna be raised. Not that we're the best thing in the world or anything, but um, when it's your kid, you feel like you are, you know? And so, so I say all that to say, God calls us all to be a cup of cold water to somebody's life. Sometimes it's, it's just your, your person that helps pay for some kid to play sports so they can be involved in some activity that they can look back on in life when they're 20 and say, I was on a baseball team or I was on a lacrosse team or soccer team. And that, and that helped them in some way. Sometimes it's, you're, the, you're the, the distant relative that just, you know, there's no official paperwork, but you're kind of the foster family to that nephew or niece who just needs the breather from the, the parent that just can't get, make a right decision to save their life, you know? Uh, and then there's sometimes you're called to af- adopt internationally or domestically and it's an official process and you've got your picture in some album and you've gone to Bethany Christian Services and you're hoping to get picked by some family and some, you know, story or whatever. And sometimes it's, you're just involved with foster care with no intention to adopt. Sometimes it is, you're open to adoption or whatever. And so, uh, what I believe firmly is that we're all called to be a cup of cold water to somebody's life. That's how I view um, what we are. Some of us can be wells. If you've got money and margin in your lifetime, you're a well, okay? <laughs> I'm not a well, all right? I'm, I got very little margin of money, uh, so I can be a cup of cold water still. And um, so the story, just, you know, just to wrap it up, um, this past year, um, the, we, we moved over two years ago to Queen Anne's County, so we live actually in Kent Island now. And they do foster care by counties in, in Maryland. And so, um, so the, in Arundel called us and kept on saying, hey, we want to, we want to keep you as one of our foster families. Uh, we think they knew something they say they didn't know, but they, they kept on saying, hey, we want you to get you relicensed, which we just basically had to get a, a meeting and they go through some paperwork or whatever. And we just kept on putting it off, said, okay, yeah, we will, we will. Um, and we wanted Zachary to be, um, be three by then or whatever. So he had his time and all that stuff. And, and so... We finally said, you know, okay, let's, so back this past May, we signed, um, I'm sorry, this past June, we had a meeting and, um, and uh, that afternoon and signed the papers to be back with Anne Arundel County Foster Care. And um, that afternoon they called us <laughs> and they said, hey, we have a baby. <laughs> and we said, no, 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 we, the, you, you set us up, you know, and, uh, and, um, and, uh, and, and actually, you actually might know, might actually have seen the story. It was a child left uh, on the doorstep of a neighbor's house in Annapolis um, they actually didn't have any problem placing that kid because it was all over the news and everybody wanted, wanted that kid. Um, but, um, but found out they got a phone call. Uh, this was late June. We got a phone call July, uh, July 1st that Zachary's mom had given birth to another child. And so they said, will you be open to taking him? So we said, of course. And so we started, he had to, um, when you're born with the drugs and alcohol stuff, you, you're, they have to detox, literally detox. 
So mom was so high as a kite, she walked 12 miles the day she gave birth. If you know anywhere in Southern Maryland, the equestrian center, she walked from there to Southern Maryland Medical. That's probably why she went into labor. Um, and and uh, so if any of y'all are pregnant and looking to get in labor, go for a 12-mile walk, and that might do it. And um, she was so high as a kite, she had no idea. She, didn't, she doesn't remember giving birth to Donovan. In fact, if I showed her a picture of Donovan, she wouldn't even... I could send her, I could grab one off Google Images and she wouldn't even know, wouldn't have known the difference because she has no recollection of anything. So we, we were there from day one uh, visiting him ever, for the whole month. Just uh, one of us, my wife or I would go and hold him and, um, and uh, till he, he could come home with us. And so we've had him ever since. Now, and the permanency plan now is for him to go to adoption. The, the mom has requested actually, she could have drawn this out a year and a half. Um, they don't know who the dad is, and, um, and so Zachary is, mom is white, dad is African-American. We know the dad very well. Um, Donovan, we don't know who the dad is, so 23andMe should let us know if he's a Latino. So I could, in a few months, have a white kid, a African-American, and a Latino, which makes me feel kind of pretty good, uh, in with all crowds, uh, and you really are in with all crowds. You take him to the uh, Zachary to the grocery store and they see his curly hair and say, oh, you know, I love his hair. And I say, oh, well, my wife has curly hair. They don't know my wife is white with curly hair. But anyway, so, um, so but again, it's, this, it's an emotional journey. I, I, you know, uh, I, the, the show um, This Is Us has done a lot. It's, it's actually helped boost foster care a lot. Actually, we're, we're still very much in touch with our foster system in Anne Arundel County and Queen Anne's County. And it is, they've actually skyrocketed with people interested because, directly because of that show, This Is Us. But you all are very well as aware uh, as well what has skyrocketed in the last two years is the heroin epidemic that is all over Maryland, especially the Eastern Shore. Salisbury and Southern Maryland. I mean, what else are you going to do in Southern Maryland? Do drugs on a Friday night, you know? And so that's what's happening. And so they have three years ago when they told us um, we, we don't have a problem placing infants is completely opposite now. And that's who they need the most, um, most from. There was an article that the um, Washington Post did or Baltimore Sun did last May. And in Baltimore alone, the babies born with drug exposure has it went up 54% in three years. So that doesn't just affect that first month of when they're born. My two sons are born without dopamine and serotonin. I don't know if you know how important those are, but those are your mood regulators. So my son Zachary, from the earliest time he could be mobile, whenever he got upset, which was, if anything, if he saw a color he didn't like, he would find the nearest wall and run into it as hard as he could. And that breaks your heart when you see that. Even to this day, three, three and a half years old, he rocks himself to sleep like this every night. There's nothing we can do to, we just try to keep him from hitting his head on something. Uh, it takes about an hour for us just to get him calmed down. Um, to the, and we use all the, you know, if you've got any herbal stuff, whatever, send it my way or whatever. But um, we use all the stuff, they, you know, all the options people throw at you or whatever. But it just breaks your heart to see these kids um, growing, having to grow up with just a, a different normal than, than, um, than, than, uh, than others could be. But again, we're the ones called to be that cup of cold water. And so I want to encourage you. I, I don't really have, this isn't like a, a whole Jesus is Savior and God, he is, you know. Um, but this is a very much more practical thing where some of you are maybe in that cliche season of life where like, oh, it'd be great when we get married, whatever. And I hope you just keep that there. I hope it's not something that is just cliche. I hope you really wrestle over as your seasons of life go on and you see that empty room in your house that you would consider that one day you are gonna stand before God 
and give an account for why you were okay with having a dusty, empty guest room in your house and not taking a teenage, pregnant teenage girl into your house. And then you had a margin in life where you were, that was what God wanted you to do with it. Um, and that's why when I went to my dad when I was 17 and I said, dad, why are we doing this? These kids hate us. They treat everybody else like gold. They, we are the enemy to all of them. Like, why are we taking in another kid? And my dad said, we have two empty bedrooms in this house. God gave us this house. I've got to stand before God one day as to why I'm more okay with those bedrooms being empty than a kid being raised in a group home in Baltimore or somewhere else. I've got to stand before God. And that has stuck with me for over the years. You have a cup of cold water. Some of, them, some of your cups are a lot bigger than others. Some of you are stinking wells. But I'd ask you to consider the season of life you're at, the stage of life you're at, being involved in a story that's going to be messy. I don't want to, I don't want to be delusional at all or paint some Disney fantasy at all. It is going to be messy. It's going to take time and energy out of your life. I've, I've, I've almost quit pastoring I can't tell you how many times over the last three years because of the lack of margin and energy that it's, our church has been very gracious, but it's tough. It is very, we, have, we go to four therapy sessions a week. Um, I don't say this to say we're heroes by any means. I'm just telling you, there's, this, this is the reality of when you hop into a mess. Um, it, takes, it takes so much out of you. And so, but God calls us to that. And God gave me a beautiful house and he gave me bio kids that are all about it. And he gave me a wife that's whose heart for it. And so if you're anywhere close to having a margin in your life in any way where you can be a blessing, I'd encourage you, that's where you're at. I'd much rather be that than the kid being laid down to rest dead by his mom and all they see is death in their future. So while I'm in this situation in life, that's kind of the commitment I've made to the Lord is God, whatever margin we have in our life, um, we'll, we'll help We'll try to do what we can with it. I would encourage you as well. If maybe God is speaking to somebody tonight about just you grabbing on to the Love Gives um, initiative, and I would love to uh, partner with you guys with that because we—that's what we want. We don't want to—we don't want Centerpoint to take on ten Love Gives families. We want ten churches to take on ten different families. We want every church to adopt one family. And if they raise $500 for that family, I promise you it will be a miracle to that family. If they raise $5,000 for that family, that family will view you as a miracle. But that is what our hope is with the, the Love Gives uh, story. So let me have a word of prayer. We're going to go to communion. And uh, thank you all so much for the privilege it's been uh, to, to be part of this community just for the night. Father God, thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace. God, you know you've, um, you, you have uh, blessed us. God, I know this, this church family, uh, my church family, God, most of us are in that season of life, Father, where, yeah, we've got bills and we, we've got our own physical issues and health issues, God, but most of us are in a season or in a stage of privilege. We have things. We have cars. We have, we have um, uh, spare rooms, God. And God, I, I know in my, in, in my, um, in who I am, God, I, I'd much rather um, get a full night's sleep of rest <laughs> than, uh, than the, some of the things over the last few years we've, we've encountered, God. But uh, at the end of the day, God, uh, you have put me and us in this room in a season of life um, to make a difference in a way that may, uh, others, Father, even tonight aren't talking about. They're not, it's not on their radar, God. I know personally, Father, that the, the majority of foster families that are, that, are, that are in that, Father, they do come from a Christian background, God, because 
Uh, we've, we've, we've experienced your love. We've experienced that good, good father. And we want the rest of the world that is growing up in abuse or abandonment to experience what it is to have a, a healing touch, to have a good fatherly uh, relationship between a father and a child, an earthly father and a, uh, an earthly child, a heavenly father in, the, in, the, in your earthly children. So God, would you speak to this community and make it clear for every single person in this room, God, just what you've given them, what's in their hand, Father. Maybe it's a well, maybe it's a, a little uh, solo cup, God. And, uh, but help, Father, then for you to clearly guide them as to how they can be a breath of uh, a cooling or a fresh cooling cup of water to somebody on a very difficult journey in life. Maybe it's a homeless person they see every day. Maybe it's a coworker going through a tough time. God, help us to consider you've blessed us so much, God. And you're not asking us to do this out of guilt or shame. It's because of this overflow of blessing you've given us, God, to, that we will now take our lives and just hop into this mess of a world that we're living in and see miracles come out of messiness, see, see um, just restoration stories come out of, out of brokenness, God. And would you uh, write many, many more of them? That, Lord, you know uh, Salisbury, you know the lower eastern shore. Uh, it needs people responding to that. Help us to do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.